All right, hockey fans, listen up because we've got something special cooked up for playoff season. It's called the Daily Faceoff Playoff Parlay Challenge, and it's going to add some serious spice to your playoff experience. Now, here's the deal every playoff game, you're going to be faced with a handful of questions. It's like your own personal playoff puzzle, and it's free to join. And there are prizes because who doesn't love winning stuff? Daily winners, you're getting hooked up with gift cards. Treat yourself to some nation gear or maybe even your favorite jersey. And for the big dogs, the people who can win an entire round, it's straight, cold, hard cash. We're talking about real dough for your hockey knowledge. So lace up those skates, stretch those thumbs, and get ready to show off your hockey IQ in the daily face-off playoff parlay challenge. Sign up today and play every game day at games.dailyfaceoff.com and prove your puck prowess. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Can you see it? Did you notice? Check, but the puck comes right to Pedersen, who tries a bank pass for Besser. In with a shot, he scores! A moment's notice. It only... You're listening to Canucks Conversation. Quinn Hughes, beat reporter here. Like, I don't, I don't cover the Canucks. Yeah. I cover Quinn Hughes and what he's doing to the Canucks. A member of the Nation Network of Podcasts and delivered by DoorDash. Just wave the guy and get Demko involved. I wanted them in and down. Wow. We should do a radio show together. <laughs> right on. I want to fist bump you right now. What a don't waste all the good stuff on the off air. Let's go. Hello, Canucks fans, and welcome back to another episode of the Canucks Conversation, brought to you by the great folks at Zephyr Epic. You can use promo code Hockey Season, capital H, capital S, all one word, Hockey Season at ZephyrEpic.com. That will get you $5 off your order. 
Lots of good stuff going on at Zephyr Epic right now. Like Chris said on the last episode, we don't know if they forgot that Black Friday is only one day, but there are fantastic sales at Zephyr Epic right now. So go check them out. Z-E-P-H-Y-R Epic on all platforms, Facebook, Twitter, Twitch, all that fun stuff. Go check them out. Free shipping anywhere in Canada on orders over $50. From Whitehorse to Waterloo, free shipping anywhere in Canada on orders over $50. We are also delivered to you by the great folks at DoorDash. Use promo code CONVODD, capital C, capital D's, all one word, CONVODD. That will get you 25% off and free delivery on your first order with the DoorDash app. Does not get much better than that, folks. My name is David Grigelli. I am joined by Harmon Dial. Just Harmon today. Not Chris the man Faber, who built the place. Not the man who built the place. Chris Faber, the man who built the place, has departed for Nanaimo. Took, took himself a little vacation. Kind of sprung it on us, but that's fine. That's fine. Uh, I don't know if people can tell. Harmon, first of all, how are you doing? Doing awesome. Always great to be in the studio. Yeah, we've got a lot of stuff to get to. And I, I thought I would touch on this off the top because... I don't know if people notice, like maybe people don't notice this, but basically when everything happened with Jim Rutherford and there's a ton of Canuck stuff to get to, I've been kind of MIA. Like if you look at my Twitter feed, it's me retweeting other people and that's it. Like I haven't really contributed much to the Vancouver media recently uh, in the past week. And that is because I was very sick and people can probably still hear it in my voice. I am recovering right now. Um, I'm... I'm getting there. Like I'm, I'm there. I think like I, I'm, I'm fine now. Uh, I won't get too into detail on it, but I was very bad recently. Uh, got a COVID test, found out it was not COVID, which is why I'm here, which is fantastic. Um, still keeping my distance from you. This is when the, uh, the storied 25 foot cable that we bought by accident at Long and McQuaid comes in handy. Cause I'm able to keep my distance from you. But, uh, yeah, it was it was a grind getting healthy. Um, it was it was a tough week for sure. Um, I won't get more into it than that. Just I'm happy to be here. It was it was a bleak week. I wasn't at the Canucks games on Wednesday or yesterday. Hoping to be there tomorrow, but again, we'll see. First and foremost, just want to make sure that I'm keeping everybody safe, even though it's not COVID. Still, nobody likes to get a cold like I had. So I'm uh, yeah, I'm here. And I'm ready to talk Canucks, even though I was not ready to talk Canucks like all week. But uh, yeah, there's lots to get to. You were at practice today. I was not. So I guess we'll just kind of start with Jim Rutherford because people were like, emergency podcast, emergency podcast. And I was like dying in my bed. I was like, there's no way I'm doing anything. So we didn't do an emergency podcast with Rutherford. Just... I guess, Harmon, your thoughts on Jim Rutherford getting hired as president of hockey operations for the Vancouver Canucks. Yeah, I'm really interested to see the rest of the dominoes that fall in terms of how Rutherford wants to build his hockey operations group, because on his own, there's no denying the track record and resume there with Rutherford, right? He won back-to-back Stanley Cups with Pittsburgh, and... A lot of people will look at Pittsburgh's core and say he had a lot of those pieces already in place, kind of like Mike Gillis did. But similar to Gillis, he really made a number of shrewd acquisitions to put the team over the top. There's just no way that the Pens would have won, would have won those cups without his contributions. And then even before that, to win that Stanley Cup in 2006 with the Carolina Hurricanes, 
that's just a level of credibility that this organization hasn't had in a long time where you look at the last regime that came in, Trevor Linden was a rookie president, Jim Benning was a rookie general manager, and Travis Green was a rookie head coach. And now the Canucks have seemingly gone in the opposite direction where you've got Bruce Boudreaux, one of the most experienced coaches in the NHL, and now Jim Rutherford in the president of Hockey Ops role where it's... In terms of the in terms of the managers that were available in the open market, he's the most accomplished name out there. And what I like about his sort of introduction to Vancouver is he instantly commands respect, not only within the organization but around the league. And I think that's such an important sort of element to it because with Vancouver, there's always been sort of you need someone that's going to stand up for your organization and has that level of respect. Because I think back to, for instance, little, little things like the schedule or when the Canucks were coming off of their COVID break and Jim Benning seemingly didn't have the weight to have things pushed back. And JT Miller had to go, go through the media. I mean, you just need someone who has stature, authority, commands, respect that can sort of advocate for your organization. And I like that element about Rutherford in terms of, I tried to look back and really dissect his tenure in Pittsburgh and I did a complete deep dive at the athletic and there were a few sort of interesting takeaways, both positives and negatives. If you look at his time in Pittsburgh, a tale of two halves, really, you look at his first two or three years, he could seemingly do no wrong. Everything he touched turned into gold. And the one thing about Rutherford, and I'm going to be really interested to see how he takes over this group accordingly is Jim Rutherford is not afraid to make bold, aggressive trades. He is someone who does not like to stand pat, and he's not afraid to shake up a locker room. Uh, One of his first moves when he came in as Penguins GM was to ship out James Neal. James Neal at the time was just coming off a season where he had 27 goals and 61 points in 59 games. He was a 40-goal, 80-point guy for the Penguins for the last few seasons. He's coming off a really, really productive year. And he shipped him out for Patrick Hornqvist. And on paper, a lot of people would have looked at Hornqvist. He only had one 30-goal campaign under his belt, had never cracked even 55 points in his career or in a single season in his career. And I think a lot of people would have looked at that and thought, that's a that's a rough trade on paper. That doesn't make sense. But I think what happened there was Rutherford sort of came into that situation and said, we need to sort of assess who the bad apples are here in the locker room. And I think that was one of his determinations. And that's a ballsy, ballsy thing to do to come in and when a franchise is sort of struggling. And keep in mind that when the Pens won their cup in 09, people looked at Crosby being 21 years old and Malkin being Malkin and Latang being in their early 20s as well and thought, man, this is going to be a dynasty. And they just kept getting bounced in the first or second round. So Rutherford comes in and his first move is trading a 40-goal score away. Like that, that really is something. And then you look at sort of the moves he made to help power the 2016 cup cup win. One thing that really stands out about Rutherford that I also like to point out in addition to the aggressiveness is he's someone who, when he makes a mistake, he quickly rectifies it. He's not someone who's going to double down. And that sort of stands out when you look at, again, one of his first moves was training a first round pick for David Perron. Perron didn't work out in Pittsburgh. So Perron was moved for Hagelin. And Hagelin obviously played a huge part in, in Pittsburgh's first cup win. Uh, you look at... Um, Mike Johnson was the first coach that uh, Jim Rutherford hired. In Rutherford's first year, the Penguins got bounced from the first round. They were 15-10-3 to start the second season, so they were fine. 
And it had only been a year and a bit since Rutherford had hired Johnston, and he canned him, brought in Mike Sullivan, who is now one of the best coaches in the NHL, quick to rectify his mistake, right? Uh, you look at even the Erica Branson edition, or uh, you look at the uh, the Ryan Reeves trade. Both those guys came in, weren't fits, out the door for both those guys. So that's one element that I like about him. And when, again, when you sort of look at what he did for that first championship, Haglin was such a huge piece. He built that HBK line. That was the X factor, right? Everyone talked about Tampa's cup run recently and how big that third line with Coleman, Goudreau, and, and Gord was for them. That was the HBK line with Haglin, Benino, and Kessel. Quiet a superstar in Phil Kessel. And then for the second cup run, they won it without Chris Letang, their number one defenseman. That is a mighty, mighty feat. And he did it through sort of taking a bunch of spare parts and acquiring a lot of useful back-end pieces, and they replaced it by committee. I mean, they bought low off Justin Schultz for a third-round pick, and Schultz in his second year was a 51-point defenseman, provided legitimate top-pair value. That was a steal. Uh, bringing in, turning a 37-year-old replacement-level Rob Skidari into Trevor Daly, who logged top four minutes. Uh, trading Robert Bertuzzo for Ian Cole, who was a rock on the third pair. A lot of really fine-tuning and... So, and then I mentioned the tale of two halves. You look at what he did afterwards, it was a little bit of a train wreck, uh, especially financially in terms of the cap situation. And this is why I think it's so important that they bring in someone who brings a new sort of new school approach to sort of balance things out. For whatever reason, they decided that they needed more physicality and toughness, despite speed and skill being their identity. One of their first moves after winning the second cup was Ryan Reeves, and then Erica Branson came in. The uh, Derek Broussard trade didn't work at the deadline. Uh, signing Jack Johnson and having to buy him out right after. Um, trading the Patrick Hornquist uh, contract after they extended him for Mike Matheson. Um, they jumped early on Marcus Pedersen, and he makes over $4 million, and that's a contract Pittsburgh's trying to get rid of now. And so you look at his tail end there. Pittsburgh's sort of screwed in terms of their cap situation, in large part because of some of Rutherford's mistakes towards the end. Now, a tendency that I've liked about him, especially in the early years, is he is open to building a deep analytics department. And I think it went away from that a little bit towards the tail, tail end of that when you look at, say, the John, Jack Johnson signing or the Erica Branson edition. So that's why I think it's so important that they bring in someone who can complement his sort of track record because there's no doubt that with Rutherford, you don't just win three Stanley Cups by accident. Like there's something legit there. Uh, and one thing that's really intriguing for me, especially as it pertains to this Canucks team, is he has had a tendency in some situations to, you know, I mentioned the Cole Schultz daily acquisitions to to take sort of spare parts and turn them into really useful blue line pieces. That's what the Canucks need. And I even look at it in 2019, they mined John Marino. Nobody knew anything about him in Harvard and playing the NCAA. And he's now a top four right-handed stud for them. I mean, that, that it, to me is really impressive. But so again, in I, I polled a lot of sort of industry contacts after this hiring. And a lot of them sort of said with Rutherford, we don't like him in terms of if he, if he was the day-to-day GM, just because you can start to see the cracks emerging. You don't want him running day-to-day hockey operations. But if you can come in and, and empower the right people and mentor a young, progressive, bright mind who uses data-driven evaluation, that's huge. And that's, I'm sure, what we'll get into soon is, is really important for this group. The last regime did not use 
analytics enough. Like they had their small little department, but they clearly did not use them. And I think that's one of the, their downfalls in building their sort of next hockey operations group. Jim Rutherford is one of the best old school minds out there. They just have to make sure now to compliment him. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one thing that you talked about there is them going a different direction and bringing in veterans, right? Like Bruce Boudreaux, veteran coach, Jim Rutherford, veteran president. I think we've been talking about that for a while and saying that's pretty long overdue. And that's the direction that this club needed to go in. Now, with Jim Rutherford, I think the thing that we need to touch on is kind of that GM search now, right? Because yes, he's interim GM right now, but I think the big thing that I took away from his press release when he was first announced as president of Hockey Ops this week was that he said I'm along, something along these lines that he used the word plan. And that's a word that we haven't heard used except with a negative connotation when the media is talking about how this organization never had a plan under Jim Benning. Now, Jim Rutherford talked about a plan in his press release and he says he's going to pitch a plan. And for what it's worth, uh, Francesco Aquilini did say that it's going to be up to Jim Rutherford if the club rebuilds. I don't think that's going to happen. I don't think he gets this job if he goes in and says, hey, I think we should rebuild everything. But that might just be good optics more than anything. But I think it kind of it kind of adds to the perception of autonomy for Jim Rutherford. And I think that's the most important thing for this organization moving forward is letting the hockey hockey people make hockey decisions, right? No meddling from the ownership and that sort of thing. Uh, That's been talked about a lot in the past. So let's touch on the GM search, first of all. So candidates for to take over as general manager, because right now, you know, Stan Smeal was interim GM. Now it's Jim Rutherford, but candidates take over full time. Yeah. Before we touch on that quickly, I'm, you know, I'm glad you brought up the autonomy point because that's another thing that industry context sort of brought up in, when I had discussions with them that, hey, he has more weight and should be able to sort of have the respect to be able to run his own plan. The the one sort of concern I had was, and I'm sure we'll touch on this later, was with the way that the gear and wall sort of firings happen. Yes. Let's just save that for later. But um, so, so scratch that. But yeah, I mean, going into sort of potential GM candidates, one thing that I think is going to be really interesting from my perspective is, is Jim Rutherford going to be open-minded in terms of the candidates that he considers? And what I mean by that is Rutherford has been in the league forever, and he is someone who has worked for multiple organizations. He's had a ton of people graduate through his program program in terms of you look at the number of executives that have left his organization and gone on to be GMs or, or had other prominent positions. He's someone that He's got as deep of a contact book as it gets in the NHL. So I wonder how heavily he may consider someone that he's already familiar with. And that is a tendency that a lot of hockey people tend to have is someone you're familiar with, someone you like. What I I would hope, though, that they're a little bit more open-minded on that because I think there are a lot of really strong candidates outside of Rutherford's immediate sort of... Uh, pool of people that he's familiar with when I think of someone like Lawrence Gilman when I think of someone like uh, Chris McFarland in Colorado and that's why I think it's so important that whatever direction that they go in it has to be it has to be a progressive mind especially when Wall gets dismissed who ran the analytics department 
you need that element. You need data-driven sort of approaches as part of your toolkit. Nobody's saying that, and this is the, the one thing that I think is so important to continuously preach. When I talk about needing data incorporated as part of the way you make player personnel decisions, I'm not talking about it being the only piece of the puzzle. That's never the point. There's no such thing as an quote-unquote analytics organization. It's never that black and white. But you even look at an organization like Tampa Bay. They were one of the first organizations back in when Brian Lawton was GM, I think in 08, when they brought brought in, I want to say his name was Michael Pedersen. They were one of the first people to invest in data analysts, made him, made him such a key part of their organization. And, and we saw the role that that's had. We've seen what Carolina has been able to do. Uh, Columbus starting their quick retool. And it's just so plain and obvious when you look at Jim Benning's past mistakes that that was a downfall of them, that they did not lean on sort of that element enough as one part of their toolkit, right? And that's with Rutherford, I think one element again, where he's an old school guy, so they need to have someone who's younger, who's more progressive. And again, that's one thing that a lot of people that I talk to within you know, around the league sort of emphasize that, hey, Rutherford could work really well in a president's role as long as there's a balance there with the right sort of GM candidate. And so I like the idea of whether it's a Gilman or a McFarland. I mean, you look at what McFarland did in Colorado. He took over right around the time when the Avalanche did their quick sort of reset. And Colorado was in a pretty similar spot as Vancouver. When you think of they had some core pieces in place. They had some high-end talent, but they had to aggressively move in a bit of a different direction because it just wasn't working. They weren't building enough of a supporting cast, and that's when they made that Matt Duchesne trade. That Matt Duchesne trade, they made, you know, he was an older part of the core, and that brought in Sam Gerard and Bowen Byron, two studs for their blue line. You look at sort of, you know, they obviously drafted Kill McCarr, and then even things like De- they traded two seconds for Devin Taves when the Islanders were in a cap crunch. Devin Taves is freaking unbelievable. He should be, in my opinion, he should be a team team Canada candidate on the left side of the defense. He's a legit top pairing stud. And they got him for two second round picks. So you look at how they've been able to build that blue line. I mean, even someone like Ryan Graves, who was a second pair sort of piece for them that they later had to move to New Jersey for a second round pick because of the expansion draft crunch. They traded, I think it was Chris Bigris, a failed second round pick of theirs and brought in this hulking six five defenseman who could kill penalties and played with Kale McCarr in his first year. Colorado did an unbelievable job of building that back end with... Again, spare parts almost. And that's such... Well, I guess I shouldn't say spare parts because Matt Duchesne was a key piece, but they built a loaded blue line and it didn't necessarily come from the draft outside of Kill McCarr. So that's why I really like McFarland, And he's been heavily involved in all of what Colorado has done. Uh, when I think of people around Jim Rutherford... Obviously, we've heard Jason Barrow, my colleague Thomas Drance, has sort of gotten an inkling that he might be one of the names under consideration. Barrow's interesting because his track record in Buffalo, let's be honest, was not very good. I think a lot of it did have to do with ownership interference. And it's always tough to gauge when there is a lot of ownership interference because, like, we talk about how meddling Vancouver's ownership is. Try working for the Peculas in Buffalo. That is... Right there with Eugene Melnick as the worst ownership groups 
in the NHL. And we don't know how much influence that they had. So I'm not the biggest fan of Botterill, but I am sort of cognizant of that context and the fact that a lot of his work in Pittsburgh as Rutherford's capologist in the early years before they sort of before they sort of messed up their cap situation, Botterill did a really good job as assistant GM. And sort of when he left was when they sort of made a lot of mistakes, Pittsburgh did cap-wise and in allocating their resources. So Botterill's a name to watch. In terms of who else might be within Rutherford's inner circle that he might consider, we've heard a lot about Jason Karamanos. Uh, Randy Sexton is someone who wouldn't surprise me if he gets a look. Uh, Sexton was Pittsburgh's director of amateur scouting, overlapped with Rutherford. He wasn't originally hired by Rutherford, but between, I think it was 2011 and 2016, 2017, he uh, drafted he drafted pretty decently for the Penguins, and once he le- once he sort of moved in a different role was when Pittsburgh's drafting kind of fell off a cliff. But uh, he was instrumental in bringing in some important pieces. I, I think Brian Rust sort of comes off the top of my head, but um, the track record was really good for Sexton, and he has GM experience back way back with uh, Ottawa, really experienced name. Uh, so. Those are just a few of sort of the candidates that come up. But really the key for me is how sort of wide a net will Rutherford cast in sort of interviewing and considering candidates. Because, yeah, there are some decent names that are within Rutherford's inner circle. But I almost tend to feel like whether it's a Gilman or whether it's a McFarland, that there might be better names outside of Rutherford's immediate circle. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. So it'll be interesting to see kind of what direction they take uh, with that. But right now, we're going to get to our poll question. And it's kind of in a similar topic to what we were just talking about. Because with all these changes, we've kind of seen the confidence of the market kind of grow, right? Like, let's let's be honest here. It was at rock bottom, right? That 4-1 loss to Pittsburgh, jersey on the ice, chance of fire bending, booing the team off the ice, like... I think that's as close to rock bottom as this team's been in a long time. So the confidence has grown. So our poll question today, our episode 221 poll question brought to you by Blue Orca Sports Memorabilia at Fuel the Fan on Twitter. Go check them out. Christmas is coming. Go buy yourself or your loved ones some sports memorabilia, some Canucks memorabilia, lots of good stuff on there. Go check them out at Fuel the Fan on Twitter. Our question, how confident are you in the team's new direction? Very confident. Wait and see, not confident, and as always, I'm angry. Right now, 78%, and I think this is the rational decision, saying wait and see. 20% say very confident, 2% say not confident, and shockingly enough, 0% of people saying I'm angry right now. Yeah, I mean, it, the I'm angry, I was just about to say, I'd be shocked if there if there's anyone really voting for for that. I, I think everyone's ecstatic with just the changes and dark cloud hanging over the organization, kind of leaving. I think a lot of people can sort of see the uh, the sunshine emerge from the dark clouds, if you will. And I think wait and see is really the right sort of answer here because. I like Rutherford. I like his credibility. I like his track record. I think he's well-suited for a president's role. But he is sort of cut from a similar cloth in terms of the old school sort of mindset. And it really comes down to who they hire as GM. Like, I can't emphasize this enough. If they hire the right candidate, 
it's like this could be a really strong balance and the organization could be headed in a really sort of smart direction. And there is sort of potential optimism for that, again, because Rutherford has been open to the idea of analytics before. I I remember seeing a, a clip from, I think it may have been from Penguins' official Twitter account, talking about how he leaned on Sam Ventura in analytics to drive the Nathan Laguerre uh, selection. I probably butchered his name, but... Uh, <laughs> So that was sort of nice to see. And on the flip side, though, if they go for a more typical old school hockey GM, then, I mean, with Rutherford, either way, he's going to make moves and we'll see whether it's for, for better or for worse. And they just have to nail this GM search because this is such a fork in the road for this organization where mm-hmm. they can't screw this up. Yeah, absolutely. And I again, just to answer the poll question, my confidence level is at the wait and see. Like I am confident. I'm not very confident, but I'm at the. I'm, I'm confident that Jim Rutherford is going to make the right decision. The organization is going to make the right decision here because I think they knocked it out of the park by bringing in Bruce Boudreaux. I think the on ice product is kind of showing that that was a good decision. But I think in terms of where you're at as an organization, I think consumer confidence is going to be very swayed by this decision. Like it depends who they bring in as GM, right? And I don't think they could really make a bad decision here. You know what I mean? Like, I think it's kind of, it's almost like a layup. Like it's, they have a lot of options and a lot of them are good options that I don't think are going to make a lot of people upset. So we'll wait and see kind of what they decide to do. But one thing that they did that kind of came as a shock to you and I, and I think everybody who observes and watches this team firing of Chris gear and Jonathan wall. Chris Gear, assistant general manager who was promoted in 2020 by Jim Benning and also the chief legal officer as well for the Vancouver Canucks, along with Jonathan Wall, who's been with the organization, correct me if I'm wrong, for over 20 years, like longer than you and I have been alive. He's been with this organization and director of analytics and there was one director of hockey operations and analytics uh, was Jonathan Wall's title. Both of those guys let go. Yeah, and... It's interesting to sort of parse that through because I think a lot of sort of people on the outside may not know sort of who who maybe aren't as familiar with the inner machinations of the organization might not know sort of the roles or, or how influential those people were. And I think a lot of people sort of looked at it and said, well, fine, they're just cleaning house. And I get that, but it was a little bit concerning to me for sure from a couple of standpoints. Number one. These are people that they weren't Bennings necessarily like loyalists or lieutenants. Gear, for instance, was not what John Weisbrod was for Jim Benning. Jonathan Wall was not sort of we talked about it. These Gear's been with the organiza- organization for over a decade as well. These are people that, you know, you look at Wall, how many regimes he's lasted through. He started, I believe, in was it the Brian Burke? Yeah, I think so. Era. And so that, I think, is a really important distinction, that these weren't Benning's guys necessarily. And when I look at what they did for this organization, they were some of the brightest people within there. I'll, I'll tell you this much straight up. And you look at what Wall did for starters. Wall, obviously mentioned director of hockey analytics, and he sort of built out that department. He brought in Ryan Beach. Uh, Aiden Fox who's in there. Is You talk to any employee within the organization about some of the work that Aiden Fox has done. 
they so glowing. And recently they brought in Miles Hoken as well, who, again, I have heard nothing but amazing things about Miles Hoken. So you look at what Wall did. I think he did a really, really tidy job. And this is someone as well who the Canucks are run through a very complex sort of cap situation where because of the number of LTI contracts that they have, injured bodies on IR, uh, when you think of even someone like Furlan right off the top, Sutter, all these sort of names, it's not easy to maximize your flexibility. And the CBA, as it pertains to LTIR, if you ever go and try and read and understand it, good luck trying to parse it through. Like, you've got to be an expert to understand it. Most general managers, I'll tell you this much, don't know how to how exactly LTIR works. And... It makes sense because it's such a complex thing and things like how do you sort of maximize your capture to, to sort of sort of maximize your flexibility in terms of your roster options because it's not easy being an LTIR on a day-to-day basis, especially when injuries sort of hit. There's a lot of cap gymnastics that have to be done and that's what Wall was exceptional at when you look at sort of the juggling that they did, the paper sort of demotions and recalls for maximizing Furlan's LTI capture to ensure that they got the maximum LTI pool out of that. And And, Sorry, not to interrupt you. You meant gear. You said wall, but you meant gear, right? You're talking about Chris Gear here? Well, both of them have worked on that. Wall's been been very influential in that as well. Okay. So both of them. I actually sort of meant both of them there. Um, But wall especially was sort of heavily involved in that. Gear was more involved as sort of like... He's also really well-tuned with the CBA, and he helped in terms of those um, day-to-day sort of cap gymnastics and juggling, if you will. But he was also sort of the lead sort of negotiator. He ran point on the RFA extensions for Hughes and Pedersen. Look at the work he did in the Connor Garland extension. Locking Garland up for under five mil. Uh, The work he did with, with the Thatcher Demko contract. He did a lot of good work recently. And again, when I look at... Gear and Wall were both some of the most progressive minds within the organization. And when we talk about the last regime and their downfall, the downfall was that they didn't have enough progressive, bright-minded voices that sort of brought different perspectives. And so that was my only concern was, hey, these are really, really smart people that have a modern take on the game. And I would have liked to see them continue, especially because they weren't banning loyalists. So... I was a little bit surprised, and obviously we're going to reserve our judgment until we see how Rutherford uh, approaches it. I'm sure he has his own analytics or contracts guy that he wants to sort of bring in. The the one, the other thing that was all, a little bit odd to me, just process-wise in terms of making the decision, was they did it before Rutherford even had a chance to come to Vancouver, sit down, and have sort of meetings with key organizational leaders and assess what they have and didn't have within the organization. And that is interesting to me because it leads me to believe that ownership had influence in this decision. Like, I don't think that this was necessarily Jim Rutherford trying to call all the shots and be like, I don't want that guy. I don't want that guy. Right. And I know a lot of people said, well, this move was sort of in the makings for a while. And so... I'm sure there were conversations about the possibilities of who might leave, who might go, and and what sort of voices Rutherford would have wanted to bring in. But I have reason to believe in sort of digging on this that ownership had quite a heavy influence on it. And that's where on the autonomy front, I just hope that once Rutherford is actually here in Vancouver, 
that ownership sort of is able to step back and not have as mm-hmm. much of a voice and say in, in those. And sort of on a side note, I also want to bring up on Rutherford. I forgot to mention this off the top. With Rutherford sort of coming to Vancouver, this was a move that I think was at least in consideration or in the works for a very, very long time. And the reason I say that is when the Canucks last season got out of the gate and sort of stumbled, there was a lot of smoke around Jim Rutherford. And listen, there are there are always sort of rumors that get thrown around and you have to do your proper due diligence in terms of what you hear and what's true in the context of certain names, right? For instance, you always heard Mike Fido's name. And when when he did more digging on that, I think some of those conversations were more about happenstance in terms of in terms of back in January or in January, late January or early February. But I think ownership was sort of really considering whether they, they should make a move. And Rutherford back then was that's the first time I heard his name is like, keep an eye on him. He may be someone that ownership has maybe talked to or, or, or is already sort of considering. So there's a deep rooted history there. But again, I just hope that when Rutherford comes in and yeah, there are ties between Rutherford and Boudreaux as well. And Boudreaux was the right sort of call as a head coach, but ownership really was heavily involved in, in making that head coach hiring as well. And it was the right decision in the end, but I just hope now that they have a real credible hockey leader that they can sort of step back and, and give that sort of autonomy to the hockey people to make the hockey decisions that we've been talking about. Absolutely. Chris Gear posting a statement did not include Francesco Aquilini or the Aquilini family at all in his statement when he was thanking everybody for his time with the organization. No mention of the Aquilinis. So do with that what you will. We're going to cut to break. On the other side, we're going to talk more about the on-ice product that we've kind of seen lately and talk about some injuries that have hit the Canucks and that sort of thing. So keep it locked, keep it loaded on Canucks Conversation. Winter is quickly approaching, but wait, that means your favorite seasonal brew is back to cheer you up. The Tukes of Hazard is now available across British Columbia and Alberta in their government and private liquor stores. This extra strong brew has a whopping 9.2% alcohol, big hop punch, even bigger body and aroma, and just a touch of white haze. The Parallel 49 fan favorite is smoother than a freshly cleaned ice rink. And a massive thank you to all of our sponsors here at the Canucks Conversation Podcast. Harmon, we want to talk a little bit about the on-ice product lately because don't look now, but the Canucks have won three straight games. Now, since Jim Benning was fired and they they changed cleaned house, right? They're undefeated. Undefeated. So if they continue at this clip... Win win the Stanley Cup. They're going to win 132 points to finish the season, win the President's Trophy... And one would just assume at that point, win the Stanley Cup. So, Harmon, my question to you, are the Canucks ever going to lose another game under Bruce Boudreaux? I think the right question is, who's Bo Horvat first going to pass the Stanley Cup to? And parade routes. That's another thing we should talk about. Are you are you on team drive it through Stanley Park? Maybe towards the tail end. I think you got you got to get through the downtown core. Yeah, I think so, too. I think that's a little bit too far sort of out on the outskirts. I think you got to go through the main city. You and go Yaletown? You can go through Yaletown? Yeah, yeah. Up. yeah M- make so. rounds through where all the riots were. and Yeah, just, exactly. For old time's sake. Old time's sake. <laughs> These are the conversations that matter, folks. Only the best here at Canucks Conversation. Uh, but in all seriousness, Harmon, the Canucks kind of, and, and Bruce Boucher even talked about this today. This isn't even evil Vancouver media talking here. 
the Canucks were flying high that first game, kind of came down a bit in the second game. And then last night, I think it's safe to say that game was stolen by Thatcher Demko. Uh, and again, they were facing the Winnipeg Jets backup goaltender and the Jets were on the second half of a back-to-back and looked like they had absolutely no legs in the third period. And they just squeaked away with a victory off the back of Thatcher Demko. So I think reality check, it's fun to talk about parade routes and everything. Reality check, the Cucks didn't really play that great last night. Yeah, they didn't. And well, overall, I think I don't think they were happy with their defensive permissiveness, but they generated a ton offensively. And right. You mentioned it after the after or after today's practice. Boudreaux mentioned that they sort of started really high and their great game in his eyes is gradually kind of tapered off a little bit, which is to be expected because the new coach bump, there is a bit of a sugar high that comes with Mm -hmm. that, that eventually do come come closer back to sort of uh, a lower level, fall back down to earth a little bit. Uh, the key, obviously, obviously, I think Vancouver media not being as negative. Kevin App was right. Uh, this is this is clearly the X factor, and they're never going to lose again as a result of that. That's why they found a way to squeak a win. But uh, in all seriousness, the one uh, couple keys here, I think, you're right. They have been a lot more permissive, and Thatcher Demko really, really bailed them out. And I like the honesty of Brudrow in recognizing that, where I think you don't want to... And Green used to talk about this a lot as well. You have to be honest with yourself, regardless of when, whether you're winning or losing, and look at the process, and is that encouraging or not? And I think after the first period... It was interesting because I came down to do the TV panel and we did it right outside the Canucks locker room. And as I sort of came down, I think it was sorry, I think it was, sorry after the second intermission. And Murph was saying that Boudreaux came in right at the start. And usually head coaches don't do that. So to me, I think that would have been a pretty stern message about, guys, we got to tighten this up. And that's an element where I don't know how many people have seen the HBO <laughs> the yes. F-bomb tirade uh, from Boudreaux. I, I posted it on TikTok, but it's it's legendary. But it also shows that Boudreaux isn't just this positivity and I'm going to coddle you. And yeah, happy-go-lucky all the time. Exactly. Like yeah. He has that element, which is important. You have to hold your players accountable. So that's going to be important. But also, I think part of what happens when you bring in a new head coach is they're now sort of winning games that are losable again if that kind of makes sense where games that are sort of on the balance uh they're able to get the result and fight through that adversity which i think matters because when green was around i think it just got to a point where the message wasn't resonating and every coach has a shelf life and i think he had just green had kind of extended beyond that especially with everything else going on in the organization and that's why when you looked at games like the chicago one or the columbus one on the road or the boston one they were losing winnable games, and that was one of the key differences. Uh, and so it's good to see them pick up the result. Obviously going to need to be much tighter defensively, but man, like, this is a tough challenge now. OEL can cannot come back sooner because I think a big part of the issue was look at what pair really got shelled. It was the Pullman-Myers one, and having to play Tucker Pullman on his wrong side with Tyler Myers, two mistake-prone defensemen. And Myers has been fine this season. I don't think he's a problem, but Tucker Pullman is Tucker Pullman on his wrong side is not the right fit. 
And to see the amount of minutes that they had to play against the Kyle Connor line, my goodness, that that pair had a lot of difficulties. There were a lot of defensive miscues from that pair, namely Tucker Pullman. Tucker Pullman, I think the fan base is kind of starting to realize after that early shine where people were like, wow, he's not as bad as everybody thought he would be. That's kind of worn off a bit, and I think people are kind of starting to really see like, oh, wait, that's how he makes a breakout pass? He just... It, his breakout pass is the same as his wrist shot. Like, <laughs> is that what we're looking at here? Um, so yeah, like I completely agree with you. OEL can't come back soon enough. And kind of a little injury update: Hamannick out two to three weeks. OEL out a week, I believe they're saying. Um, that could go longer. That could be shorter. We don't know just yet. But did not skate at practice today on Saturday. Won't probably won't be available on uh, Sunday if, if he's not skating in a practice on on Saturday. So he's not available. And the name that I've been kind of talking about and someone I want to touch on here is Jack Rathbone. I think with Jack Rathbone, the way I kind of look at the way his season went is, look, he, he earned a spot at a training camp, but then when injuries started to hit the Canucks and they had to start really just worrying about defending like competently, they couldn't try and do anything flashy. They couldn't try to be a team that like broke out of their own zone with any sort of poise, right? When Travis Green was still coaching this team. And I think that mindset of just trying to lock things down and just try not to get scored on was kind of prevalent in how they constructed their lineup. And I think that's why we didn't see Jack Rathbone with this team toward the end of Travis Green's tenure. And I think the reason that I'd like to see him up now is just because of the way Boudreaux likes to play and the way Boudreaux's style is. I think that really benefits a guy like Jack Rathbone, and I'd love to see him called up. Uh, I've been kind of calling for it for a while on Twitter, but the the thing right now that I want to point out is that he's not in the lineup tonight for the Abbotsford Canucks, and he, I don't think he's healthy. Uh, he traveled with the team, but I don't think he's... One, he's not healthy enough to play, so... If you're going to call someone up, you're obviously going to call someone up who's actually able to play, and Rathbone's not there right now. Yeah, so uh, Juleson was recalled. Yeah, so Noah Juleson was recalled instead. Um, and Faber's not here, but anybody who's watched Abbotsford Canucks games oh. will tell you that Noah Juleson is not the same defender as Jack Rathbone. Oh, Juleson's, oh my goodness. Oh, watching him play in, in Abbotsford is... Like, he's a fine AHL defenseman, don't get me wrong. He's actually good in the AHL, but my goodness... Watching him play sometimes, the sort of poor decision-making with the puck without it. As an NHL defender, I mean, maybe he'd be fine in a game or two in spot duty, but trust me, guys, you do not want Noah Juleson in the lineup. He is mistake. Here's what it's like to watch Juleson, because I've watched a couple of Abbotsford games. You'll think to yourself, maybe watching him after a period or two, man, this this guy's actually kind of solid. He can skate. He's got some physical elements. He grinds. And then he'll just make a boneheaded decision with or without the puck. And it's like, man, this guy is not an NHL caliber defenseman by any stretch of the imagination. So, yeah, you're right. You do not want Juleson in the lineup at all. And that's where it's tough, too, with Rathbone because... And I mean, I only caught the the one game uh, of him down in Abbotsford the night that uh, all the firings happened. But Rathbone defensively, too. I mean, at least in that one game, he didn't look his best defensively by my eye. In the first period, the Barracuda scored, and one of them was Rathbone kind of chasing the play and being caught out of position. So I'm interested to see where his game is at. And the one thing with Rathbone is 
you know, it'd be, and I'd be curious about what really is the best sort of move, even for his development, where obviously started the season in camp, in making the team out of camp, played third pair minutes, sheltered. It's tough too because he's not he's not in a position where I guess maybe now I don't mind it as much because he can man say the second unit power play, but when he was an OELer in the lineup, he's not going to get power play minutes. And so I wonder what's best for him playing fourteen fifteen minutes a night down. Uh, down on the third pair with Vancouver, or is it playing 25 minutes a night for Abbotsford? And so we'll have to see when he gets healthy. The team ultimately might just be too battered and bruised not to have Rathman there anyway, especially because I don't think Brad Hunt had his best showing the other night, lost a couple of battles. And Hunt, I think, is, you know, his track record is better than what he's shown this season, but this season he hasn't been very good straight up. So it's a tough spot. And that's where, that's why we talk so much about it's important for this Canucks team to pick up early points because their schedule in October was pretty easy. Uh, when you looked at their sort of strengths of, of, of uh, competition and who they were playing against and they were healthy. And so the rest of December, it's, they've got a softer schedule. They've got to run through and continue this run under Boudreaux. Because, man, if you have to go through the January uh, death march that we've talked about before on this podcast, you sort of and, – and if, and if the injury bug continues to strike, it's going to be tough, tough sledding. And certainly Boudreaux on the back end has sort of his work cut out for him in terms of – doesn't have a lot of options out there right now. Yeah, absolutely. And really, you look at this blue line and what they have, it's like – what can you do if you're Bruce Boudreaux, right? There's just not a ton of options right now. So, again, we've talked about it. Three straight wins. Sunday, Carolina is going to be coming off a back-to-back, which definitely helps the Canucks' chances. But I think this is probably going to be the most legitimate test that this team's had under Bruce Boudreaux. So, it'll be interesting to see kind of how they respond to that. Do you have anything you want to add before we close out here? No, it's just, I mean, the one thing is it's, man, and I'm sure we can all relate to this, it's just nice not to... Like I just feel refreshed coming to the rink, and I know players feel the same way. I know whether it's fans, whether it's other sort of whoever's left within the organization that's still employed. I think everyone sort of feel a lot of people. I shouldn't say everyone. A lot of people sort of feel that way. Where it's obviously tough to see a lot of the people that were left or let go move on, but by the same token, changes needed to be made and. I think you're seeing now that for as much as this roster is flawed in its construction, the team can play a lot, lot better. And we'll see how long it lasts. It may just be a sugar high, but man, it's just so nice to come into a studio and to talk about some positive elements, to talk about change, to talk about, hey, they're picking up some wins instead of just... They're losing, and the penalty kills a mess, and the power play can't get going, and it's just so refreshing. And oh, one other thing I wanted to go before, wanted to touch on before we close out. Pedersen today, media availability, talking about how he switched to switch back to his old stick. He had been experimenting with a longer sort of uh, stick through this season, and you could tell in terms of how he was bobbling passes, and so the lack of control he had in terms of Deeks just wasn't a fit. And going back to the shorter st- stick, that's going to help his control, right? When you look at a short versus long stick, the longer one, 
the benefit of that is you have a longer reach and you can break up more plays defensively. The downside is you have less control in terms of your handles. And you watch someone like Connor Garland, how he finds success. He's able to get and pull off so many deeks because he's so low to the ice. And part of it is just his body, but the stick is a part of it as well. And that's where with Pedersen, I think that's going to help. And a lot of people will say, well, why did he even go to that? I think there was a lot of sort of, We've heard with the pandemic, there's been you know supply chain issues and a lot of even with stick manufacturers, them having sort of issues with with getting the right product out there. Bauer is the company that uh, reps Pedersen with the sticks. And Pedersen mentioned in his off season training, he got the wrong batch of sticks, and the sticks he got were softer, and it sort of just threw him off, and uh. He ended up in a spot where he was just going through a bunch of weird different sticks that he wasn't used to because he got the wrong batch. And so that's where now I think it was maybe the Chicago game that Kevin Woodley was bringing up that he noticed that Pedersen, he thinks, is using a different stick. Uh, It's good to see him go back. I think that'll help him. And man, it would be so nice for the market to sort of have that because the building was electric. I mean, you look at the Kings game. Boston game, not so much because it was a lower event game, but the Winnipeg game, it's just exciting and fun and entertaining to tune into Canucks games again. And man, I can't wait to see what's going to happen once Elise Pedersen gets going. And, and I think he's getting closer. And it's really exciting because we saw the shootout goal, him pulling off of Forsberg. In the, I think it was the first period to him come busting down the left wing, loading up with an absolute rocket and hitting the post. Can you imagine if that would have gone in? That was reminiscent of rookie season Pedersen going bar down uh, against Detroit with the shorter stick. Hopefully this is him being on the cusp of some special things because man, if the season goes down the drain, if they don't make the playoffs, at least they'll give fans something to be excited about, something to be entertained about as we embark on a new chapter, a new, new sort of page of uh, Canucks hockey. Yeah, Absolutely. All right, I think we'll close it out there. Faber, once again, not here, but we'll still close it out on behalf of him. So on behalf of my co-host, Harmon Dial, and Chris Faber, who's on the island, absolutely living it up, I hope. My name is David Quadrelli. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Canucks Conversation. Thanks for listening to Canucks Conversation. Delivered by DoorDash. Hit the subscribe button to never miss an episode. How about keep it to a thank you, Jim?